This is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is the Full Story Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. A new report from Oxfam shows that rising inequality is not only worsening the climate crisis, the climate crisis is also worsening inequality. The super-rich are now responsible for half of the world's emissions, while the poorest are more likely to suffer from increasingly frequent heatwaves and extreme weather events. So as we head towards three degrees Celsius of global heating, how does this change the way governments and individuals try to make a difference? Today, I'm speaking with Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of Newsroom Mike Tisher about the Great Carbon Divide. It's Friday, the 24th of November. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Jane. Good morning, Mike. Hi, Jane. How are you? Good, good. Okay, Lenore, as we've heard on our Weight of the World series all this week, scientists have known and warned governments for many, many years now about not only the climate crisis, but also the fact that not all countries are equally responsible for carbon emissions. But we're seeing a new picture emerge now about this divide. What have we learned? So our Guardian colleagues around the world have done this really interesting series. It's drawing on data from the IEA and studies by Oxfam, and it's looking at climate through the sort of inequality lens, which sounds a lot like what we've done for a long time, but actually it's quite different. It's like I was at the very first climate summit in Rio de Janeiro 31 years ago, and right from the get-go it was always a question of the developed world created the problem by developing and you can't ask the developing world to not develop in order to solve the problem. Like This has sort of been at the heart of those climate talks right from the get-go. But now, three decades on, inequality between countries is sort of changing. It's still there, obviously, but like China is now as big an emitter as America. And what this study does is look back at carbon inequality within countries. The carbon inequality within countries between the super wealthy and the poor is actually really stark. The richest 1% of the population produces as much carbon pollution in one year as the 5 billion people who make up the poorest two thirds. Like This is really stark, important way of looking at it. The other reason we've always shied away from looking at it that way is 
blaming individuals for a problem that is really sort of structural and political, which is also still the case. But nevertheless, I think the shift in wealth inequality makes this new prism of looking at it incredibly interesting and important. Mike, not only do the richest contribute the most to the climate crisis, the poorest are also the most likely to suffer the brunt of the climate crisis, right? Yeah, and as Lenore was saying previously, we've thought about that in terms of the global poor, as and rightly so, because they are not to blame for the climate crisis. And as you say, they are likely to suffer the impacts the most because anyone sort of stands to reason, anyone who does not have resources is more likely to live in poorer accommodation, be less able to recover from, a, for example, from a you know a natural disaster if it's climate-induced or otherwise. Not afford heating and cooling. Exactly. All yeah. that, everything, basically. And I think one of the interesting things about this is that it really goes to how climate policies, both policies developed and how they're sold politically in developed countries in Australia and Western countries generally because we've seen a lot of cases in recent years where climate policy has been attacked and in some cases legitimately attacked for having an unfair burden on people at the bottom of the scale. And that is something that obviously can be used politically to generate opposition to it and and has been. And that's a big problem. It's a problem because that's a really unfair way to develop policy, but it's also a problem where the perception that that's the case, whether true or not, is going to be mobilised to to oppose that policy and, and in many cases successfully to oppose it. We've seen that in the UK recently. We've seen, we've seen it in France with the big protests by the Yellow Vest. We've seen it in Germany. And we've seen it here as well where people have been activated against environmental policies, you know, policies to reduce emissions on the grounds that it will hurt less well-off people Although more. here... When it was the emissions trading scheme, there was actually pretty much full compensation for medium and low income earners that just got left out of the debate when it was all axe attacks and we're all doomed. Yeah, it's not always it's not always true, but, but yeah, but the it's perception potent. is it's the potent, perception yeah. is um, is important. Mm. Lenore, as you mentioned, this series refocuses our attention on the divide within countries as well. So what are the kinds of things that are driving the bulk of emissions? Um, Yeah, well, they own stuff like uh, super yachts. And apparently, I did not know this because I've never been in the market for a super yacht, but apparently super yachts or even medium-sized motor yachts are about the most polluting single object that you can possibly own. And they own a whole bunch of them. Well, they're ginormous. <laughs> yeah. There are no reliable estimates of how much carbon the world's 6,000 super yachts pump into the atmosphere. But one study of billionaires' footprints found yachts were the single biggest contributor, even bigger than their private jets. But let's get up to their private jets. They also own private jets. <laughs> and we looked at the private jets owned by about 200 celebrities, CEOs, oligarchs, you know, private jet owning types and calculated the carbon footprint of their flights would be the equivalent of the total emissions of almost 40,000 residents of the UK. You know, and they fly around often with nobody in them, like you just send your private jet somewhere so that it'll be there when you need to be picked up kind of thing. So now Thomas Piketty, the economist, is calling for a ban on private jets. So that's billionaires. They emit, you know, in very special ways, but of course it's mm. not just billionaires that are the problem. Yeah, that's true. There's also the middle class, right, who also can be very wealthy in a country like Australia. What sorts of things can they contribute to their carbon footprint? Aviation is a big one. People flying, obviously in Australia it's difficult to 
get out of Australia without flying. It's also quite difficult to get around Australia without flying because our intercity train service is so um, bad, <laughs> terrible. Those very fast trains we're yeah. talking about for 30 or 40 years, they would come in quite handy now. But yeah. anyways. So we fly an awful lot and uh, to some extent that's unavoidable. Um, electronic goods, furniture, cars especially. We've talked a lot on this podcast recently about how the profile of Australia's car fleets is changing in a terrible way for the climate in that they're, we're buying much bigger cars and much more often, which stands to reason, people who have more disposable income spend it on that kind of stuff and they all create emissions in their own way. And the thing is there are things in all of those categories that we can all do to reduce our emissions. But in every single case, there's also sort of structural impediments that make your consumption choices sort of worse for the environment. So, you know, buying furniture and electronics goods, if we had green steel, if we had a a lower emissions manufacturing sector, those choices wouldn't be as bad as they are. If we had better public transport in a lot of cities, it would be easier to not use your car. I mean, if you get right down to it, you know, mostly the mortgage-free boomers who are flying all around the world and living in houses bigger than they need to. But if we had taxation policy that didn't penalise so heavily changing where you live to a smaller, more appropriate house, like if we didn't have stamp duty and capital gains tax, people, you know, so there's a whole lot of structural, I'm not, I'm not letting us off the hook. I'm not letting us middle-class people off the hook. Like clearly, yes, it is our choices, but there are also policy choices that governments could have made that would make our choices easier. Yeah, I think if we've learned anything from the last 30 or more years of talking about the climate problem, it's that lecturing people about their consumption or their habits and telling them they should do different things for the climate does not work on an overall scale. Like, it's good to do things that are going to reduce your own personal emissions, obviously, People absolutely should do all those things, but that does not work. When I say a global scale, I don't mean like a world scale, but like on on a mass scale, yeah. But there's a counter argument to that, right, too, which is when people feel helpless about, you know, a climate crisis that is just sort of coming on faster than we ever imagined, feeling like you're doing something, even though it's something small, is a way of not feeling hopeless and helpless. It's, it's that side of it as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. There was a two um, academics from Victoria University wrote in the conversation last week about this problem, about how most people realise there's a climate crisis coming, it's already upon us, and yet we act as if it isn't. And why is that? And the, the answer is mostly because that's kind of the way we're built. We want simple, quick answers. We want our lives to be stable. We want them to be easy. And addressing the climate problem is not any of those things. It's complex. It's difficult. It's going to take time. It requires, in some cases, quite significant changes to people's lifestyles. It's difficult. It's conflict. It's everything. And we're just kind of not built to respond personally in a way that is going to make the difference. Mm. We have to be pushed by incentives and in some cases by prohibitions perhaps, billionaires particularly, <laughs> but mostly you, you You're going to ban super yachts, are you there? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I am not in a position to ban Mike super Mike Tish is banning super yachts. <laughs> um, and also there's other 
crises that sort of bang into this as well, right? Like the housing crisis, so a greater proportion of the population is going to be renting houses. And then it's, you know, there's various schemes, but to a large extent, the emissions profile of your home is kind of out of your control. You can't really do much about it. So yeah, it's, it's complicated. I mean, if the richest contribute the most, particularly those with vested interest in fossil fuels, that makes negotiating on a world stage much, much harder, doesn't it, Lenore? Well, yes, it does. And um, the next conference of the parties meeting is coming up, you know, every year, everyone flies in. Yes, I reckon we should have a look at that to somewhere in the world to have these these climate talks that this time they're all flying into the UAE. Its ruler is part of probably the richest family on the planet who own 6% of the world's oil reserves and they're worth about $300 billion dollars. So I I don't know that I can spell the disconnect out any further. The other end of the lens from looking at what individuals can do to address the climate crisis is that in this Climate Divide series, they asked a lot of economists and other climate experts what we should do about it. How do you tackle this problem, that of inequality in relation to climate? Mm. And to be honest, some of the answers were... um, grandiose, shall we say... (laughs) (laughs) They're kind of like, we need to upend the entire capitalist system and right. start from scratch. Um, Isn't that what First Dog on the Moon said? <laughs> uh, they were asking for things like undertake an extensive deep intervention in the reorganisation of econ- economic activity. Have they been having a look at politics I mean, lately, for God's sake? Exactly. I mean, you know, they're, they're economists. They're saying what would actually work better is this, but they're kind of starting from a blank slate. If we weren't where we are, but we are where we are, we have to start from actual yeah, You definitely wouldn't politics. start from here. <laughs> and mm. that kind of goes to the difficulties of COP in some ways, which is the tools we have to tackle it with that work are have to incremental, difficult, involve compromise. They have to be, they take place within the politics of every country. Like politics, we don't have a global government; we have national mm. governments, and those and all those national governments have to work within the parameters of what's possible politically for them. Otherwise, they all get in democratic countries at least, they all get turfed out. So it's this difficult thing where we have to do something radical and quick, but in a slow and (laughs) incremental compromise-laden way. It's interesting though, because I used to go to those meetings for about 25 years and it it did really do my head in sometimes because you'd see over several decades the same people flying into the same meetings and having the same conversations with apparently zero progress. But then there was progress and it sort of happened in different ways. There's this sort of track of international negotiations, what countries actually, you know, pledge to. Then there's the reaction of global investors and global investment and business who clearly see the direction of travel and try and get ahead of it. And then there's the technological advances. And it's not a clean, straight, line, but there is progress. Mm. But I think if there's one takeaway from this Climate Divide series, it is that whatever policies governments put together, they must be aware of the Mm. potential for them to negatively impact people's cost of living, especially at the bottom end, because that is not only deeply unfair and bad policy, but it's also going to provoke a reaction to the environmental policies that have to happen pretty soon. At a time when people are disaffected and feeling sort of left out already. And politics is extremely volatile and Mm. prone to, you know, populist rhetoric of many different sorts. And I think there hasn't been enough of that 
in many countries, including this one, that you need to think about compensating people very substantially for anything that is going to hit them in their pocket if it requires a change and talking about it in those terms as well, making it very explicit. We've talked about it quite a lot in terms of communities transitioning from, you know, coal-producing communities, for Mm. example, how they're going to transition to a renewables future, but it goes for individuals as well. And, yeah, I think we're going to need to hear a lot more about that. Next, two very different trips. If you knew the world was heading for a crisis, what would you do? I'm feeling a sense of failure. And what if you were the scientist who saw it coming? 40 years of trying to get the science in place to solve the problem. Weight of the World, a new three-part series from Guardian Australia about three scientists who first predicted the climate crisis. Listen now by going to the full story feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast player. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. And now we come to what we can't get out of our head this week. What was it for you this week, Lenore? So we ran a story about this bloke who had had a, quote, bit to drink in Nambucca Heads, and then he needed to drive to Coffs Harbour. It's 50 kilometres away, about half an hour. So instead of, like, calling an Uber, he decided to climb into the undercarriage of a stationary B-double semi-trailer while the truck driver was having a bit of a kip to hitch a ride. I, I did mention he'd had a bit to drink, right? Anyway, yeah. he he aimed to get out of the underbelly of the B-dub at a red light in Coffs Harbour, which is not a bad plan because there's like 10 or 12 red lights as you drive through the Pacific Highway in Coffs Harbour. But on this night, every single light was green. And so he <laughs> ended up four hours down the road at the Gold Coast, which proves my theory <laughs> of traffic lights. That when you're in a hurry, they're always red. And if you've got all the time in the world, they're always green. <laughs> and if you're stowing away under a BW, well, don't, just don't do that. <laughs> I think that's good life advice for <laughs> Don't stow, under a B, stow away under a BW. <laughs> Words to live by. And Mike, what was it for you this week? Uh, so I've been thinking about the royal family this week. Prince Edward, it turns out, is on a three-day tour of Sydney. And, I mean, I didn't know that he was actually called the Duke of Edinburgh now, uh, which is the case. It was quite the row in the royal family whether he had done enough to justify earning that title, but apparently he has. They earn now, things? Well, now <laughs> that now that uh, the Harry and Meghan are no longer available, there's more things that have to be done 
and whatever those things are. <laughs> so they were thought that extra workload justified him taking on the title. Anyway, Prince Edward is here as we speak. He's at the uh, State Emergency Service headquarters in Marrickville talking to people about the Duke of Edinburgh Award. He's here for a three-day visit, has flown here. Uh, economy class, it should be said. Uh, anyway, that sort of Same was one reason <laughs> I was thinking about the royal family. And the other one was that we ran a very funny review about a British morning TV show where Sarah Ferguson, the former wife of Prince Andrew, was for reasons best known for themselves, brought on as a guest host and um, it didn't go it well. It didn't go well. This morning's guest editor for the day, our co-host for the next two and a half hours, none other than Sarah, Duchess of York. We're so excited to have you. Oh, thank you. Well, now, on this occasion, uh, according to our review, she watched a man cook spaghetti carbonara in the, in the same way that people watched David Blaine do magic tricks because she'd never seen anyone cook it before. <laughs> During the daily spin-to-win competition, she was in charge of spinning the wheel and for a moment looked utterly puzzled. Is this the first time you've ever spun a wheel, asked the host, Alison Hammond. It is, cried the Duchess. <laughs> <laughs> and so on. Pop down and get a lovely saucy underwear department in your in your <laughs> chest of drawers and you really make the hair, you know, blow dry the hair and then have a... It, lovely- it's sort of sad in a way, but it's like what... So these people, what are these people for? <laughs> well, what is their, they don't have a role. And it's a, it, it sort of have sympathy for them in some ways because they have nothing she to do. She once wrote a children's book about a helicopter. She did, yes. Thanks so much, Lenore. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot. That was Guardian Australia's Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of Newsroom Mike Tisher. If you want to go and read The Guardian's Great Carbon Divide series, we'll post some links to those articles on the Full Story page. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producer was Miles Martignoni. I'm Jane Lee, and we'll be back with a regular episode of Full Story for you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Patrick Keneally, National News Editor at Guardian Australia. Guardian Australia's Morning Mail is a quick roundup of the day's top stories, delivered directly to your inbox. Bringing you reliable, accurate news from journalists you can trust. And it's free. Sign up at theguardian.com forward slash newsletter or simply search for Guardian Australia Newsletters. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.